All right, all right. So the kids, you are dismissed. We have some spaces for the kids um, during our time together here this morning to interact and play. So we're going to enter into uh, our pastoral prayer time. Uh, and I can remember the first time uh, that this really, this time stood out to me. We were, uh, gosh, I don't even remember where we were, three or four locations ago. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, were, we were there and I was sitting out just like you guys. And, and this was back when Josh was here. And uh, he started praying. And I thought it was just going to be like a typical, you know, little prayer, you know, like you, you typically expect right before a sermon. But, but then he kept on going. <laughs> Uh, and it, and then he kept on going, and, and he kept on going, and it, it was like he pushed through a barrier in my heart, uh, where I began to understand that prayer is not this obligatory thing that we ought to do, or even a good thing that we should be doing. It's something deeper and more meaningful than that. And uh, in that moment, man, when he pressed into it like that. I, I, I entered into that space probably for the first time in my Christian life. And I interacted with God in prayer in my heart and my soul in that moment in a way that I had yet to do prior to that moment. And it was deep and it was rich and it was, it was, it was timeless. And I lost track of time. So not to set myself up for anything because I'm about to pray, but uh, uh, let, let's enter into that space uh, together here. Um, let's, let's center our hearts and our minds around why we're here, what, what, our, what our intention is to be here, worshiping God, to sit underneath his word. So let's pray. Father, Lord, um, I just thank you for this little body of believers, Lord God, that you've you gathered together here in this place for your glory, for your name's sake, that we might, that we might hear a word from you this morning, Father God, that might enliven our spirits, renew our minds, Renew our spiritual fervor, Lord God, that we might be a people that are fruitful for you. Father, I pray that the lies of the enemy that are outside, creeping outside that door as we leave here this morning would, would be vanquished by the truth and the light of your word. Father, I pray that your word would be so revealing to us this morning. Pray that your spirit would move as you promised it to move, to divide soul and spirit, to pierce the heart, Lord God, and to bring forth light and truth and goodness and the fruits of the spirit, Lord God. I pray that those would permeate from us as a result of our time together, committing ourselves, one another, to the teaching and the worship of you, Lord God. I pray that the insecurities that we're experiencing this week, the fears, the anxieties, the the different myriad of challenges, Lord God, that come from external and internal forces, Lord God, I pray that those would be dealt with, with your grace and your mercy and your love. Father, give us a vision of your son this morning, one perhaps that we had never seen before, Lord God, a, a, a vision that would uh, enrapture our hearts, Lord God, that we might pursue hard after you. Father, we need you to equip us to be able to do that work. Father, we need the motivation to move forward in that direction, Lord God. So I pray that you'd give us that through the teaching of your word this morning. Father, we pray for the other Christians around this city. 
Lord God, around this world that are meeting this morning for the same purpose, Lord God, to hear from you, to to respond to you in worship, to ascribe worth and value and honor and glory to you and to your dear son. Lord God, I pray that they would be blessed during their time this morning. I pray that their hearts would be moved to worship. I pray that they would see a clear picture of your gospel through the teaching of your word. Father, we, we, we pray against humanism. We pray against all the schemes of the evil one to infect and distort and dissemble, Lord God, in our churches this morning. Father, I pray that the men who are preaching this morning would preach clearly through your word with clear consciences, Lord God, not like the scribes that we're going to read about this morning, Father. Lord God, we, we, we pray for encouragement of the saints. Lord God, we pray for revival. Father, we pray that a great multitude of people will be swept into the kingdom this morning as a result of the preaching of your word all across the world. Lord God, we pray that your, the numbers of your church would swell this morning. Lord God, that, that the flag of Zion will be planted on every hill on this planet, Lord God, because you're worthy of that. So Father, I pray that you would give us that heavenly vision, that heavenly ambition to see your name made great amongst the nations, from the rising of the sun even to its setting. May your name be great amongst the nations. Lord God, that is our ambition. Father, sanctify that ambition. Give us the energies and the motivations to stay engaged this morning in this work, I pray. In your son's name, amen. All right, so we're uh, continuing on our journey through the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, um, now is the time to open those up, and we're going to try our best to faithfully walk through the text that we are at uh, this morning, trusting that each of these verses in this book are gold, that the dust of this book is gold, that everything is profitable for us. And so I, I hope that that will indeed be the case this morning. So we're in Mark, we're in chapter 12, and we're going to be starting at verse 35 through the end of the chapter. Uh, so uh, Jesus, uh, a bit of context of where we're at, uh, Jesus has entered into uh, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the triumphal entry, the Hosanna, uh, was his greeting uh, of people... Um, as he entered in, declaring that he was the Messiah. These same people that he knew uh, seven short days later would be calling for his crucifixion. He walks into the city, <clears throat> he goes to the temple, and in the temple he sees that it has become a den of robbers. He clears out the temple the place where the, it was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations had become something entirely different, a place of greed, a place that was never intended for it to be. He clears it out. He walks by a fig tree. It is not blooming. It, is not, it, doesn't, it isn't bearing fruit. He curses it. Giving us this, this picture he explains later to, uh, to, uh, to Peter when Peter notes the next day that it's withered from the root up. This idea of the nation of Israel having had access to the truth about God but not believing and not bearing fruit. 
coming from the temple that was not bearing fruit, from the leaders of the people who were not bearing fruit because of their lack of belief. I mean, the Son of Man was in their midst, and they, yet they still did not believe, and that's evidenced by the ruling parties and the different officials of the ruling classes coming to him during this time, trying to embarrass him, trying to catch him in something, trying to uh, change the, the opinions of the people against him, ultimately wanting to destroy him and kill him. Yet in each and every one of those interactions, he deals with them with exactly what they need to hear. He gives them truth when they don't deserve it. He deals with them at times even uh, graciously and gently, even though they were out to destroy him. And in the midst of this, there's, there, there's, there's a sense in which there's, there's no fruit that he's seeing anywhere. In the leaders, in the people, in the temple. And then in our story, though, we get a, a beautiful glimmer of fruitfulness in a widow who gives her two mites to the temple. It's this beautiful picture, and I think that it, it gives us this this a diagnostic tool for us this morning as we assess our own fruitfulness, a tool that uh, will help us to see that uh, when we're giving of our time and our treasures and our talents, what we're really doing is we're giving back to God what he has already given to us in uh, so many ways and in his son in particular. Like a father who uh, gives his son or daughter some money to go off and, and, and buy him a gift for his birthday. That's how our God deals with his children. And I think we're going to see that beautifully this morning in our story. Where Jesus, his last moments in the temple, he sees a beautiful picture of fruitfulness derived from a trusting heart. So we're going to break up our, our, our text. Our outline is going to be this. We have the context of our story. We have a contrast. And we have a challenge. Context, contrast, and challenge. That's how our text, I think, is broken up. So let's jump in. <clears throat> Again, we're in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And Jesus taught in the temple. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said... How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls, from, calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes. We like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, 
This poor widow has put in more than all those who have contributed to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. So we start in uh, verse 35 where he, he, he's given the final rebuke of the scribes, of the, the teachers of God's word uh, at the time. The final rebuke, they, they, were, they would pour over the scriptures. That was their profession, was to uh, teach and unpack. They were scholars of God's word. It, yet, even though they had the word that they were pouring over, they, they did not interpret it correctly because of the hardness of their heart, because of the lack of faith and trust that they had in God. Jesus uses a rhetorical device to draw that out. In Matthew, it gives a a fuller account of this interaction, this last interaction that he has with the scribes. He has previously silenced them. They're not coming to him anymore with questions. He's he's dealt with them to the extent that they know that there's there's no way into his, there's no attack that they can make against him. He has thwarted everything. And so now he draws his piercing gaze at them and exposes the insufficiency of their teaching. They didn't get it. It was right there before him. He uses the scripture that we read in Psalm 110. It it was right there before them. David saying, the Lord says to my Lord that, that the son of David would also be the Lord of David. And he exposes that. They were so close, these scribes. And it's crazy to think that we too can be so close to something. We could be growing up in a Christian household. We could be hearing the gospel for the, the majority of our lifetimes. Yet because of a lack of faith and trust in God, we can too not see it. I know that's my story. Many of you have similar testimonies to that reality as well. They could not see what was clear before them in the Old Testament that the son of David would be God himself, that God would be the one who would come and save his people. It's the ark of the book of Psalms. It's, it's this notion that the, the people of Israel, they, they were told that out of Judah, the king would come and he would sit on the throne forever. And, and it was right there before them. And if you follow the melodic line of the book of Psalms, it follows this trajectory where the king fails. It's Solomon. No, no, no. It's not Solomon because he fails. So who is this king going to be? And then we find out halfway through the book of Psalms that God is that king. It's not just going to be a man who's going to come and save the people of Israel. It's God himself who's going to come. And then the book ends with God collecting a people for himself. So it was there. It was right there for them. All through the book of Psalms, this ark, this, 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 this trajectory that God himself would be the one to do this work. God himself would be the one to sit on that throne. They didn't see it. So he calls, that, he calls the people's attention to that. He speaks to the people to set up the next section where he says in verse 38, and in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes. Beware. It's this notion of be, be critical, be scrutinize your teachers. These were the teachers of the time. Scrutinize them, he says. Beware. Why? And he gives us evidences of things to look for. Fruit to inspect in the lives of our leaders. And we would be wise to follow this, this, um, these, these, these uh, uh, indicators 
in our own assessments of our own leaders. And look what he says. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts who devour the widow's houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He says, scrutinize their ambition. Scrutinize their greed. Scrutinize their hypocrisy. You know, as I was, as I was reading through this, and, you know, we, we always have it in our mind that the scribes and the Pharisees are like the boogeyman. They're the bad guys in the story. And, and it, to, to, to a degree, that's absolutely right. They were the, the objects of, of opposition um, towards Jesus. But as I was reading this and, and, and praying over this text and thinking about this in terms of application, the, I saw more and more clearly that they were to be pitied. Why? They were slaves to these things. These men, so close to the word of God, pouring over it day and night, missing it because they lacked trust and faith in him. And therefore, the fruit of that lack of trust was ambition, greed, and hypocrisy. That was the fruit. And those things are slaveries. That's bondage. Always needing to get ahead, ambition. Never having enough greed. Hypocritical external piety. A slave to outward appearances. They're slaves. They were slaves. We have men parading around our our country and around this world that are the modern day scribes. You see it on Instagram. (laughs) The, the, if you're familiar, I think we spoke about this, this Instagram account on, on, from the pulpit, preachers and sneakers. This notion that, that, that men are, are, are flaunting an external sense of ambition and greed right there from the stage wearing $1,500 shoes and $1,000 jackets and putting on these appearances, these outward appearances of piety. They're still here. Scribes are still here. Jesus is telling us to be to beware. He's telling us to scrutinize. We need to be looking into the characters of the people that we're allowing to influence us. And we need to be careful. And we he gives us a litmus test. Ambition, greed, and external piety, hypocritical external piety. These men are to be pitied. These people, when we fall into these place, spaces, are to, were to be pitied because we are slaves to these things. It's a call to be careful who we sit under, that we will know them by their fruit. It's the final word that he's going to say about the scribes here, the final condemnation. He says, it's interesting, he says in verse 39, or verse 40, excuse me, who devour widows' houses. What does that mean? It's interesting because we're going to be meeting a widow in our next uh, section here, and this is kind of one of those textual things. And when we're dealing with the context of a text, we're trying to ascertain what's the, what's the main aim of the author, what's, what's, that, what's the thrust of this story, what's the main point, what's the big vision. That caught my eye, and I should catch yours, being a, a, a critical reader of God's word. 
who devour widows' houses. Well, I think we need some context in order to understand truly what, what, what's, in, what's, that, what's in view there. And, and you have to understand that the scribes, how they made their living. Like the, the Levitical priests of old, when, when God divvied up the promised land, he, he gave the inheritance to the different tribes, but the tribe of Levites, the, the, the Levites, he did not give an inheritance, and he told them that I will be your portion. I will be your inheritance. You will not get an inheritance of money or land. I will be that. And in that same view, in that same uh, idea that the scribes were supposed to live off the benevolence of the people. They were prohibited from charging for their teaching. They, they, they couldn't hold it to themselves and collect money for their, for their words and, and, and unpacking of the scriptures to God's people. They were prohibited from doing that. They had to trust that God would provide. That God would move in the hearts of the people and give them what they needed. That they could not trust. They could not trust. There was also a, a, a law that we, need to, that we need to be aware of to understand the context here. That the temple itself was supposed to provide for the care of widows. It was supposed to store up money and resources for widows, orphans, sojourners, foreigners. That was the mandate from God from the temple for the temple. These men were in charge of carrying out that mandate. Yet instead of taking care of the widows, Jesus says that they did something wholly different. That they exploited widows. That notion of devouring, that's a complete notion. They completely brought widows to, to a destitute state. The widows that were relying upon the temple for, for, um, to provide for them, widows being one of the most vulnerable places, uh, statuses in that society. And these men were, in a sense, trusting in the, in the wealth of widows instead of trusting in the goodness of their God, of their alleged God. Which is interesting because it sets up our interaction with a widow here in a little bit. Let's move on. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury. You've got to understand something. And this is something that always strikes me. Anytime I see a little detail about, like this. And Jesus sat down. He was man. And he was God. He was the biological human descendant of David. Yet he was David's Lord. He was both fully God and fully man. The man side of him was restrained just like we are. The vagaries of life and energies and dispensing of passions and purpose and, and, and energy towards the cause and work of God. We grow tired and so did he. Jesus, he probably just spent a tremendous amount of time preaching and teaching, contending with all of these wicked men. And so he moves on to the treasury and he sits down people watches and man I wish I didn't have a mask on right now so you can see my face because I find that very I just find that so cool that he that he that he he walks into the temple now this area of the temple we got to understand this is the court of the woman this is a very very big area 10,000 people could be in this area and it, it, it wouldn't feel like it was crowded and this is Passover so the whole city of Jerusalem is swelled with people so he walks into this extremely probably busy 
and noisy place, and he sets himself up, and he sits down, and he watches people give to the treasury box. Now, these treasury boxes, there was 13 of these things, according to tradition. And they were shaped like inverted trumpets. And people would drop the coin in, ding, 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 and it would make noise. And I can only imagine if I was there, you know what I would be doing. And I know if, if my brother Blake was there with me, probably, we'd probably chat it up with one eye on one of the offering boxes. Watching the people walk up, dumping coins, the rich ones, right? The big bags. Oh, this one's going to make a lot of noise. This one right here, I think this is going to be the biggest one yet. The, the, the servants carrying over a big bags of coins, offerings, dumping it in, cling, 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 cling. People watching. That's what I would be doing. Maybe some of you would be doing that with me. Speculating. Which one of these is going to be the most, make the most noise? There's a, there's a little anecdote that Jesus says that the, the Pharisees love that noise. He's alluding to the, the offering. The noise that the coins make when they drop into these receptacles. So he's sitting there and he's watching people. And the text says... And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. So they're dumping in the money. Now these, of the 13, they all, they all had different, different um, purposes, different designations. This one, we think, is, was the free will offering box. The free will offering box. Now, you'll recall, and we've, we spoke on this before, that when Moses, it, this was actually during a, a time that a Doug did a teaching on giving. When Moses called on the people to, a free, to give a free will offering, a free will offering to the Lord, um, to, to construct the tabernacle. God says, ask the people to give out of the, out of the overflow of their heart, whatever they want, whatever they feel moved to give, Call on the people to give the resources to build my tabernacle. And so Moses did. That was the institution of the free will offering. This idea that we're giving back to God out of affection, out of love. And they gave more than they needed, the text says. And the people had to tell Moses, hey, we don't know what to do with all this. I mean, this keeps, keep, the money just keeps on coming in. Why? Because the people had just seen what God had done, rescuing and redeeming them out of, the, out of the hands of the Egyptians. And they wanted to respond in affection and love for the goodness of God in their lives. They gave freely in the free will offering. Well, that's what this box was. It was the free will offering box. And Jesus is there and he's watching. And the disciples were there at some, at some vantage point. I was probably, I'll be, I'm going to put myself with the disciples and we're watching this. This, and we're watching the rich, they're dumping in all this coin, and it's making all these noises, and we're saying, wow, that's going to be, that, that right there, that's going to pay for, for something cool for God, isn't it? I mean, look at all that. We have these fundraisers that go around all, all around the world. We draw the big donors in. We, we, we want to do something great for God. We call all the big heavy hitters in. Well, that's what these guys were, all the rich, the heavy hitters. At least the people thought they were. Then what happens? Verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, put yourself there. You're watching. We're people watching. People are dumping loads and loads of money into this thing, and then up walks the, this, this, this one. And back in the day when there used to be commercials, this is like the commercial break time. 
right? So you have to go to the bathroom. You're watching the, you're watching the Super Bowl. Actually, not, maybe not with the Super Bowl because commercials are, are supposed to be cool or whatever. You're watching something else, and the commercials are not cool. So you're like, all right, I'm, I'm checking out right now. This is my minute and a half to go to the bathroom to go refresh my drink, whatever. That's this moment, I'm guessing. I'm speculating. That's this moment for so many people here if they were watching this scene. Like, there's not going to make any noise there. Nothing's happening. This is, a, this is, she doesn't even have a bag. She has nothing. She just has, look, she's just dropping. No, that's, there, there's nothing to see here. But I wonder, from Jesus' vantage point, what he was thinking. So he can see on the inside. He can see the heart. And he just got done watching all these rich people drop in their big bags of coins into this box as though that's something. As though that's supposed to make God pleased. He sees the inside of their heart. And he sees this widow. And he sees the inside of her heart. And I'm just wondering, man, if, if, if the, the, first, the first fruits of a smile start to cross over Jesus' face in that moment, his heart starts beating faster. If it's like in the, in the Song of Solomon, where, where the groom, he says to the bridegroom, one glance of your eye, one glance of your necklace, my heart beats faster. What does that, what does that mean? The, the groom had adorned the bride with his necklace. He had adorned her. He had assigned beauty and worth and value to her, and his heart beats faster. I'm wondering if Jesus is feeling that same thing as he sees the faithful, trusting widow walk up to the offering, the free will box, the box that was only intended to give to God out of the free um, movements of your heart, and she gives all that she had for that day. She had probably traveled for Passover from another city. She brought only what she needed to, to, to sustain life during her time in the city. And here she is on that day, and she's giving it back to God freely, out of devotion and affection for Him. And I can't help to think that Jesus' heart beat faster as He saw that. This tangible sign of faith and trust expressing itself in this way. So what does he do? Well, the, well, the, the disciples were there. He stands up. He says, come over here. I got to show you something. You saw that? Did you see that? No, not all the big bags of coins that maybe you thought were something special to God. No, that. What does he say? He says, truly, verse 43, truly I say to you. Man, when Jesus says truly, you know it's something that's really important is about to be said. I tell my kids, when he says truly, we pay attention. He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So I want to unpack this, this contrast, this fruitful contrast from the fruitlessness of the scribes. What do we have to take away from this? 
What is, what is our takeaway? And I mentioned in the beginning, this, there, this is a somewhat of a diagnostic tool for us this morning of giving our time, our treasure, talents to God. Number one thing I think that we need to see is God doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need it. Uh, Paul says when, he, when he's, in, uh, he, he's speaking to the Athenians, he says, God is not served by human hands as though he needs something from us. There's this idea that we get in our heads that, that we need to give because God is, is in heaven and, and, and he's looking down at Corvallis and, and he's, he's wrangling his hands and he's saying, oh, if, if, if only the, the, the members of the branch were a little more faithful in giving of their time and their treasure and their talents, man, I'd be able to do this and I'd be able to do that and I'd be able to make a name for myself and I'd be able to... That's not the case. It's not the case. But Jesus pointing out that she gave more, he's pointing out that God doesn't need the money. God does not need the money. David said in anticipation of the temple, in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, he said this, But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? He's talking about giving to the, giving to the building of the temple. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. It's that idea, again, of the father giving to his son to buy him a gift out of love. It's returning to God what he has already given to us. God isn't interested in raising funds. He doesn't need our money. He's interested in raising children. Number two, the aspects of fruitfulness that I I see here, that it's related to affection. It's all about affection. The widow gives to the very temple that we can, I think, reasonably conclude defrauded her Jesus says, the scribes, devour the houses of widow. Here we have a widow. She only has two pennies to her name for that day. She gives it to the very place that probably treated her harshly, put her in a destitute state. So is she giving to the temple or is she giving to her God? It's affection, guys. Her, Her affection caused her to go and to give freely to her God. She gave to the very people who exploited her, but it didn't matter because God was her portion. God was her portion. Oh, the freedom. Oh, the beauty. She returned to God what he had graciously given to her. She chose between, she had a a choice between, in that moment, between food and to be satisfied in her soul. And she chose the latter. It's about affections. God is concerned with the heart, not with the quality, not with the quantity. Number three, it's about trust. It's about trust. The widow trusted in God's word. God had said that he would care for the widow, the orphan, 
the sojourner, the foreigner. He had spoken that in his word. She trusted in her God that he would provide for her where the temple and the scribes had not. You think about the, all the parables of, of money in the Bible. In Jesus' parable after parable, money is, is an aspect where, where, your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Why is it so much talk about money? What is it about money? I think that there's, there's a sense in which money is, is a barrier, can act in so many of our lives as a barrier between us and trusting in God as the one who said that I will clothe you with uh, the beauty, more beautiful than the lilies of the field, and I will tend to you like I tend to the sparrow. So do not worry about tomorrow. Trust me. Trust me. Don't allow money and the trappings of money and the false sense of security that money provides to be a barrier between trusting in me to provide for your needs, to, to make good on the promises that I've made to you. It's about affection. It's about trust. And always being reminded that God doesn't need our gifts. He is not served by human hands. That he has cattle on a thousand hills. That it's all his. He's not interested in raising funds. He's interested in raising children. The fruit that was born from the act of the widow. The trust and the affection that she embodied has had a ripple effect. Man, you think about those large sums of money that were dropped in by those rich people. Came to nothing. Worthless. No value. But the act of affection and trust embodied by the widow has had ripple effects throughout all of time and will continue to do so until Jesus returns. It has been a model for so many people to encourage them to trust in God, to respond to the affection that they have for the ways that God has provided for them by giving of their time, their treasure, their talent, the freedom that she embodied in that moment, walking out of that temple, having been fed with food that the world knows nothing about, water that the world knows nothing about, the water and the food that will sustain her for an eternity, she experienced in that moment, walking out of that temple. Man, I can only imagine what was going on in her mind. She was probably thinking to herself, I can't wait to see how God's going to provide for me today. Man, maybe it's going to be, I'm going to be walking back out of the temple. Maybe one of the brothers is going to see me or one of the sisters. And they're going to call me over and they'll be like, Hey, I want you to come over to my house tonight. I want to feed you. I want to give you a place to stay. Maybe that's what it's going to be. Who knows? Who knows? But she trusted that God was going to provide for her. And that freed her to be able to give because she wanted to give. So many of us want to give our time and our treasure and our talents. We want desperately to honor God with those things. But there's barriers in our lives. There's things that preclude us from trusting, from jumping in and saying, you know what, I'm just going to do this. I want to do this. I want to give to the Lord. I don't want to be trapped by these things in my life. I don't want to be a slave to these things, to ambition and greed, to these notions of of, of external piety. I don't want to do that because I love them. Because he's provided for me. 
Because just like Abraham said, when God provided a, a, a ram in the thicket, he was, God called Abraham to, to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And, and Abraham, in obedience and faith, walks up the mountain with Isaac, and he, and he puts him on the rock, and he, and he takes out the flint knife, and he's about to drive it into his own son, the son of promise, the one that God had promised him. And God stops his hand. He says, do not harm the boy. Look over there, there's a ram caught in a thicket. That will be your substitute. And Abraham says, he gives God a new name. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. I apologize for getting emotional. It's been an emotional week for me. The Lord will provide. And that's our story. That lamb in the thicket, that ram in the thicket. We think, man, what a story that is. Woo! Isaac, Abraham, that was almost like the end of it. Like, what was God going to do? That's crazy. We think that's the end of the story, and it was not the end of the story. It was only the intermission. And God takes takes the knife out of Abraham's hand. And hundreds of years later, his son, his only son whom he loved, is hanging on a tree. And he had become sin. This is only three days away from our text. And he plunged that knife into the heart of his only begotten son. And his son drank the cup of God's wrath. The cup that we were to drink down to its last drop because of the wickedness and the sinfulness and the lack of trust, the faithlessness and all the rest. But God provided a substitute for us. So we give our time, our talents, treasures, out of affection, trusting in our God, knowing that we're the kid that has just been given money from his dad to go out and buy his dad a gift. That's all this is. That's all this is. So the challenge, the challenge. Now I want to I speculate here. Doug calls this sanctified speculation. I like that. Sanctified speculation. I want to speculate about this widow for a moment. Like what, what got her to that point where she could do that act, where she could embody that act that we can be reading about now and be so blessed by. Like, like how does she all of a sudden come to that place where she could give all that she had for that day, trusting that God was going to provide and wanting his sustenance instead. How did she get there? And I, I think, I, I, I don't think that the model of the scriptures would, would, would tell us that this was some like movement of emotion. That she was just like, one day she woke up, she's like, you know what? I know I'm supposed to do this. Like, I, I know, I just, need to, I just need to go do it and just, like, I'm just going to do it and just see what happens. I don't know. I'm just going to do it because I know that's what, I'm just going to be wild and crazy. I'm going to be radical. <laughs> I'm going to be radical. I, I don't think that's what it was. What I think is that this was a slow, methodical, intentional collection of experiences in this woman's life 
were over large periods of time walking with God in trust. She saw him move and provide and take care and, 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 and sustain, not just in her life, but in the life of the saints that she had congregated herself with, that she had, that she had, had committed herself to her local people, her local church. And it was a collection of these things. Deposits into the bank account of trusting in God and seeing him provide time and time and time again. I, th- I, th- I think it was this. It was what, what, uh, what uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, this notion of, of intentional planned giving, setting aside in the beginning of the month money for, for the collection of the church. It's this, it's, this, it's this slow, it's not sexy. It's not sexy. It's not flashy. It's, it's, it's tiny. <laughs> it's baby steps. It, it, it's committing ourselves to each other and, and recounting the stories of God's grace and how he provides. It's storing up reservoirs of trust. I think that's what got her there. Where she was able to express to her God her gratitude in the way that I know each and every one of us wants to do. We want to be free from the trappings of the things that prevent us from doing what our hearts cry out to do, to express our gratitude, our affection, and trust towards God. I think that's what it was. I think, I think, I think that's where I want to encourage us into, that, that, that we would be a people that, that, that helps each other along the way of storing up reservoirs of trust and how God has provided for our people. There's so many stories in this room. I'm encouraged so often by the brothers and sisters in this room as they tell me about how God's providing for them, as they tell me about how God's speaking a word to them through, his, through, through the text or, or through worship or in an experience with another believer. It's, it, that's how this happens. That's how we become like this poor widow that, that, that made, that I want to say made Jesus' heart beat faster. She was fruitful because she trusted. Let us be a people who are fruitful because we trust in our God. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Lord, we just um, come before you again. and We're just so thankful for the word that you've given us this morning. Lord God, that, that we might be fruitful for you. That we might be free from the trappings of money and status and ambition, Lord God, to, to be like this widow, to embody these realities, these truths, that you have provided for us a lamb, that you've given us a mighty savior. And we can be free to to give to you out of the abundance of what you've given to us, Lord God, and we can experience the beauty of trusting in you and seeing all the ways that you will continue to provide for your people. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to gather together reservoirs and upon reservoirs of trust in you in the coming months and years as a people living life together in community, Lord God. Move in our midst, Father. Encourage us in these ways that we might give to you our time, our treasure, and our talents, Father, with affection in our heart and with trust. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.